There is such a thing called conscious consciousness. In terms of consciousness. In terms of consciousness. What consciousness is. You're listening to Explain the Brain from the Mind Science Foundation. People with post-traumatic stress disorder often report having memory issues, trouble remembering where they left their keys, why they just walked into the kitchen, what it is they meant to get at the grocery store. Justin Holbert's newest research suggests a reason for these issues. He's a professor of psychology at Bard College and a Mind Science Foundation grantee. He has a new paper out in Nature where he looked at what happened in research subjects' brains when they were shown images on a screen and told to try to forget them. He found that when they were purposely pushing out a memory, they had trouble forming new memories. It was like they were temporarily shutting off their hippocampus. That's a crucial memory area of the brain. I talked to him this last month at his office. How did you get into memory research? I think I was fascinated by how memory really ties together everything it is that makes us who we are. So in order to develop a life narrative and find that we have comfort with our personality, with our outlook in life, that requires us to make connections between our life experiences, things that we plan to do in the future, those goals. Typically, when we are retrieving an old memory of a past event, what on on the most basic level is this going on in our minds? Um, So the first thing that we often do is take account of what cues are in our environment. And those cues can be things in our external environment, uh, what room we're in, whether those cues are tied to previous memories. But we also care about our internal environment as well. So is our heart racing? If our heart is racing now, then we think back to other periods of time where our heart was similarly racing. The same thing happens with mood states. So if you are happy Now you are better able to recall other memories in which you were happy, as well as negative memories from other periods of time where you were happy as well. So we first take account of these unique cues, and the sum of all of those cues help point us to the memories that are available to us at that moment. The real problem becomes in trying to sort through the associated memories, because very often there's more than one memory that are tied to all of these cues. So it becomes a dynamic process where you have to try to selectively pull out the memory that is most relevant to that current situation and push away some of the other memories that are getting in the way of your access to what it is that you are interested in retrieving. So the current situation you're in influences the kind of memories that you even have access to pulling up? Sure, sure. Everything uh, that we experience uh, that goes into our memory stores, which is just a vast... uh, data store of all of these things. And we have at our uh, fingertips a lot of resources to try and pinpoint the exact memories that we want. So I'm thinking just in the moment right now, because I am in kind of poorly lit room interviewing a scientist, (laughs) it'd be easier for me to think about other situations where I was in other poorly lit rooms interviewing a scientist. Yeah, no, uh, the lighting conditions, the conditions around you are a really important factor in trying to get your mind in the right space. You can use this to your advantage, however, because our imaginations are uh, pretty vast. And simply by remembering a similar situation, say if you walk into a room and you realize that you forgot your keys, you can think back to where you had just been and putting yourself back into that mental context, even though you're physically in a very different space, that does help you retrieve uh, the 
memory that you're interested in. So yes, it can be a limitation. Um, it can push us in odd directions, but also we can uh, flip that on its head and try and use it to our advantage. And what's, what's going on on a um, more physiological level? It's something with our hippocampus? So uh, there are a variety of different types of memory, but the hippocampus is a very important region of the brain for trying to remember events in our lives, specifically events uh, that we can describe verbally pretty easily. So this is different than, say, learning how to ride a bike. Uh, those types of procedural learning skills rely on very different brain regions for the most part. Uh, but if you uh, were to, say, damage the hippocampus, we find that these uh, individuals uh, become amnesic very densely. That is, they're unable to form new memories, new life episodes. So they're constantly living in the moment. If you've seen the movie Memento, that would be one example of somebody who is suffering from this type of amnesia, where they're unable to lay down any new memories about their lives. It's interesting to me when I look through memory research literature that there's so much talk about lesions to the hippocampus and damage to the hippocampus like, this is largely an intellectual exercise, right? Sure. Uh, so uh, I think there are a number of ways in which the hippocampus can be damaged. HM, perhaps one of the most famous uh, case studies in all of psychology, he had damage to his hippocampus that was caused by surgeons. He was having seizures. He wasn't responding to medication. So his surgeon went in and surgically removed uh, the hippocampus, which sits on both sides of the brain. And while this did have the intended effect of reducing the severity of the seizures, it also induced uh, this dense amnesia. So he was unable to lay down new memories. And because this was such an impairment, it really disrupted HM's life. Uh, the surgeons decided that this was probably not something thing to do on a regular basis. But yes, you're right that uh, this is a low incidence type thing where you would get a selective lesion to the hippocampus. And one of the really exciting developments that I've been working on recently is we find that we are able to go in non-invasively without using any surgical tools and temporarily turn on or off the hippocampus at will which on the one hand allows us to understand more about the types of memory processes that the hippocampus supports, but at the same time allows us to think about ways in which we can better control our memory system so that we can remember when we want to remember or perhaps forget when we want to forget. Yeah, you, um, you talk about something that you, you call virtu a virtual lesion to the hippocampus. What, um, what are you talking about that might cause that? Sure. We found if people are motivated to try and push out unwanted memories, we find that people reduce activity in their hippocampus, which makes a lot of sense if you're trying not to remember something, and here you have this part of the brain that is super handy for trying to retrieve those old episodes from life, it makes sense not to have that area of the brain very active. Unfortunately, this part of the brain, the hippocampus, is also critical for laying down new memories. So at the same time that people are trying to push out specific targets, unwanted memories, they're making it harder to learn new information, new life experiences. So it's hard to remember new things in the present when you're trying to not remember older things in the past. 
Exactly. And we find that the brain is rather sluggish in many respects, so it's not an on-off switch that you can simply toggle to turn this hippocampus on or off. It takes a little bit of time to ramp up or down, so you might think of it as being on a slow dimmer system. So there may be things in the surround of periods of time when we're trying to suppress an unwanted memory that we actually would like to learn about something new. Um, and those experiences, we find that they get sucked up into a black hole or what we call an amnesic shadow. And uh, so far we've been finding that uh, this is a rather dense shadow that lasts for seconds and perhaps even longer. So we think that this may be one of the many pieces that helps explain why people suffering in the wake of trauma find it harder to lay down new memories about their lives, even if those memories are completely unrelated to the trauma itself. Yeah, because when I when I first was just reading the paper and I was thinking about people doing these lab exercises, and it's it seems so arbitrary. Like, oh, if you try to forget this thing on a screen, you're going to have trouble remembering this other thing on a screen. But then once once I read more about the, the possible relations to, to trauma victims, it made, it made a lot more sense. We were shocked. There were plenty of reasons why we wouldn't have found uh, the effect that we're observing. And uh, the reason for it was really largely based on two things. One was the fMRI evidence that had come out around uh, other experiments that had been looking at memory suppression. And the other was uh, an anecdote from one of my co-authors on this paper. So he was actually teaching a class on amnesia to a group of undergraduates. And one of the undergraduates, she raised her hand and uh, told the class that for a period of time in her life, she was actually amnesic. That didn't quite make sense to the professor, Michael Anderson, uh, one of my co-authors, and it also didn't make sense to the uh, the other students in the room. Here was somebody who was very healthy, as far as we could see, and she had this blank spot uh, in her life. She, I mean, is that something that happens a lot in psychology classes, that a student says, oh yeah, yeah, I have that? I'm not sure if it's as bad as the cases of uh, medical students flipping through the book and realizing that they feel like they have every condition known to uh, mankind. But yes, that does happen quite a bit in psychology. So what did he think when she said that? He didn't know what to think, but she explained herself. It turned out that she was a witness to uh, the Columbine school shooting. And uh, shortly after that terrible tragedy, she and her fellow students were asked to return to the very same building in which the tragedy took place. So here she was on a daily basis, surrounded by reminders of these things that she would prefer not to think about, and try as she might to focus on her schoolwork so that she wouldn't uh, be subject to these uh, traumatic flashbacks, she found that she, nothing would stick from day to day. All of that material and science and math would just escape her. So she was really the inspiration for this new line of research where we're trying to see to what extent it is that our memory control system, remembering when we want to remember and forgetting when we want to forget, not only has targeted consequences for those things that we're bringing to mind or pushing away, but also uh, things in the temporal surround, things that might happen just before or just after memory suppression. I feel like it's almost like like in meditation how you're supposed to put your mind completely blank and sometimes that feels something like something that's beyond conscious control. Mm -hmm. How does someone consciously push away a memory? Sure. We find that when people initially come into the laboratory and we sit them down and we tell them, okay, now we want you to block out all of these memories that we had just taught you, 
people are uh, pretty bad at it. They will tell us that. Sometimes they will be a little bit angry that we uh, are now asking them to do something that feels very uncomfortable or very unnatural in the outset. But more and more, as people have uh, greater experience trying to push these memories out of mind, we find that uh, people do lock into a strategy that works for them. And unless we tell them exactly what to do, very often people will find uh, their own groove, and that may be going down path A or path B. We only see this uh, memory impairment, the associated amnesia, after people have had a certain uh, level of experience with memory control. So looking across all of our samples or many experiments, we find that it takes about 30 minutes for people to get into this rhythm where they are able to push out these unwanted memories pretty successfully. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like kind of a brain ninja move to be able to just be like, no, don't want to think about that, not going to think about that. Is that a good thing to be able to do that? Well, I think in the moment, if you need to focus on something else, I think it is uh, critical for our, uh, it is critical for all of us to be able to push out of mind what might be distracting. So very often we think about memory as only being good if we're able to bring something to mind and forgetting is just a horrible thing that we should avoid. It may be uh, something that is part of our lives, but as much as we can avoid it, that's what we want to do. But really, if every time we walked into the same room, we had come flooding back every experience that we ever had in that room, we'd never be able to get anything done. And that could be the case even if all of the memories associated with the room were positive. And then you bring into the mix memories that you would prefer not to think about because they're upsetting to you in some way. So it is critical to be able to at least temporarily push those memories out of mind. There are, of course, ethical concerns with uh, what may happen if those memories are pushed out to the extent that it would be hard to report back to somebody else what exactly happened in a, in a scenario, say, if you were being interrogated or interviewed by a police officer. But for the moment, I think it is very important to have that flexibility. What's this tell us about our brains that that they do this, that they have this inability to kind of double task on memory in times like this? Sure. Um, let me think about that for a moment. <laughs> so I think it teaches us that our access to uh, Conscious memories is far more complex than we would have thought originally. And not only does it matter what our goals are in the moment, but it matters what types of activities we were engaged in just before or just after. So really, if we're trying to plan out the best strategy for our ability to remember all the things that we want to remember going forward and forget the things that we don't want to remember, uh, then we need to take a bigger picture view and try and see how all of these activities affect each other. It's this complex interaction rather than simply what we're doing in the moment um, and that is isolated from everything else. That seems hard to take that big picture of you, though, when all you're trying to do is get rid of a bad thought. It's true, and that's why we try uh, to the best extent possible to try uh, to control for some of these uh, random factors. People are coming into the laboratory with their own life experiences, with their own uh, prior history of perhaps suppressing memories, or this could be a completely new experience for them, which is why uh, we are interested in the individual differences that people bring to the fore. So uh, people who have more experience in pushing out these memories, perhaps those are the people who are better at controlling their thoughts in the moment, but these could also be the individuals who show the largest amnesia effect. 
Do you, I mean, you, you see a lot of people come into the lab and deal with memory suppression. Do you feel like this is something most people are experienced with doing? I think people have a good variety of experiences trying to control unwanted thoughts. Everybody has things that they would prefer not to think about, perhaps because they're simply distracting or perhaps because they're unpleasant. Yeah, I'm just, I'm wondering like how central to the human experience that is, like wanting to block out memories. Again, if we're if we're coming into a room or we pass by somebody that we had a fight with yesterday, but we have to work with them today, it's very often the case that we have to push aside or cordon off some of those unwanted memories just so that we can engage with them in the moment. So these might not be situations, matters of life and death, or it could just be on a regular basis. I hadn't thought about those smaller like less significant memory suppression. So like if you had a small fight with someone you want to make up, so you just sure. forget that that happened or you have to do something that was scary when you did it before. And so you just don't think about that last time. Forgetting is such a fundamental part of our lives. So if we park in one spot yesterday, we don't want to remember where we parked uh, yesterday. We want to remember where we parked today. We're constantly finding ourselves in new situations, and we have to be rather flexible in our ability to go back and only pull up the memories that are relevant to our current situation, not previous situations. Now, that's not to say that all the other memories that are floating around we never want to retrieve again. Something that we're tossing out in the trash uh, could be become very important later. So that's why it is important to try and figure out what strategies allow us to forget in the moment, um, but then allow us to bring back to mind those very same memories if it does become important later. So whether we realize it or not, we're making a trade-off. If we're choosing to not remember something in the past, we may be giving up remembering what's happening right now. So it seems as though some strategies, uh, we are locking ourselves into that uh, winner-take-all scenario, and uh, that will have implications for your ability to retrieve uh, those memories at later points in time, and perhaps other things that happened in the, the same uh, in the period of time when you were engaged in memory suppression or retrieval. But we may be able to identify strategies that don't make it this zero-sum game, where we can win on both accounts. And I think that is one of the things that's driving me forward to try and identify those winning strategies. Thanks to Justin Holbert for that interview. You can find more of his work at memlab.bard.edu. And you can learn more about the Mind Science Foundation at mindscience.org. For Explain the Brain, I'm Audrey Quinn. Our top listener city this month, for the first time, is the Mind Science Foundation's hometown of San Antonio, Texas. That's exciting to see. If you want to help more people find the show, subscribe to us on iTunes and be sure to leave us a review. Mm-hmm.